Hello there, uh, this is Martina from the Daily Express. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit about Brexit, uh, about the US elections and about how the government is dealing with coronavirus uh, and the vital revolution that Dominic Cummings is planning. Um, so at this point, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, all the deals, the other trade deals that uh, Britain could strike around the world and where Britain should focus its trade policy. Should it be Asia? Should it be the US or South America? What, what are your thoughts on this? Hello, Martina. I think it's really encouraging that Britain is now negotiating all these free trade agreements with the wider world. We, a lot of focus has been on the relationship and the negotiations between Britain and the EU, but I think the ones that really will count in the future are the trade deals that Liz Truss and her team in the Department of Trade and Negotiating with the wider world. Liz Truss's team has very quietly and effectively negotiated for us to be part of what's known as the Pacific Partnership, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's around the Pacific that you've got big economic growth now. You've got China, you've got the US, you've got Australia, you've got Indonesia and all the rest of it. By being part of the Pacific Partnership, Britain can negotiate free trade agreements with um, a dozen different dynamic global countries. And, and I think that is a real, a real game changer. And it's really exciting and, and really encouraging. We're already starting to see the fruits of this. We've just negotiated this amazing new deal with Japan, um, the second or third largest economy in the world. People said it would take years to do. I heard people talking about six or eight years to negotiate. Liz Truss and her team have managed to negotiate this deal within a matter of months. And it's, it's a lot better than what we had as members of the EU. So this is really exciting. Uh, we need to see that same spirit of new trade deals, um, not only with Asia, we need to see it, I hope, with North America, um, South America and Africa. I, I think there are many countries around the world that we can have much closer trade uh, deals with now, now that we're not in the EU. Um, so about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we know that Donald Trump, uh, so Barack Obama wanted to enter the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, but as soon as Donald Trump took office, he decided not to. Do you think that if Britain joins, would that be, could it, po could it be possible for the US to uh, join? Yeah, I mean, th the original idea was um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership with America as the, the, the key player in it. And mm -hmm. of of course, as you mentioned, Donald Trump decided not to go down that route. Um, that may well change. If there's a change of leadership in the White House, if there's a new president, they might decide to re-engage with that. I don't think in terms of Britain's relationship with the rest of the partnership, it really matters. We, we have an enormous amount of trade with the US and we don't have a trade deal with the US. Um, that, that trade relationship is only going to only going to get stronger. If the US did join the Pacific Partnership, that would be that would be good. But um, we're signed up and we're involved um, as a big player anyway. Um, so the question is, do we win or do we win even more? Um, you know, I, 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 I don't think we need to be too worried about about either scenario with or without the US. It's really good that we're in the Pacific Partnership. Um, how long do you reckon before uh, we'll be able to enter the partnership? Well, you know, it's, it's not a, there's not a single switch that you can flick 
and you, you get all these agreements. In, in a way, being part of the partnership is, is something that we, we, in effect, already are. It's, it's by being part of the partnership that we've got this new trade agreement with Japan. But if we can get a, a deal like that with Japan, what could we get with other members of the, of the partnership? Yeah, there are countries in the partnership that you might not traditionally think of as major economies with whom we trade. Take, for example, Vietnam. Vietnam is not a country that historically we've had a particularly close relationship, but there are nearly 100 million Vietnamese and their economy, because they've abandoned communism and embraced the free market, is doing phenomenally well. We ought to have a much closer relationship with countries like Vietnam. Singapore, if you can qualify as a doctor or an accountant in Singapore, why the heck can't you practice medicine or accountancy in the UK? There are a whole range of deals that we could conduct with different members of the Pacific Partnership that, that would be hugely to our advantage and, and hugely to theirs. Um, I wanted to move on to the uh, Conservative and how they're doing at the moment. Um, my first question is, you recently said, I recently um, saw on your Twitter, that you started uh, rereading Statecraft by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and then you wondered how she would have responded to COVID and Brexit, uh, etc. Do you have any idea how do you think she would react to all of this? First COVID and then the Brexit negotiations. I mean, I, I think on Brexit, I think she would be pretty much where... Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and, and the team are. I, I can't really see how someone who believed in what she believed in, which is the nation state, but also free markets and having good relations with your neighbors. I don't, I don't see that she would have done anything different. I think what we're seeing is, is, is a, a deal that all conservatives, both the traditional conservatives and the more modern um, conservatives could recognize as, as, as good. On COVID, I suspect you would have seen something in her science background. She was, after all, a, a, a scientist in her own right. I think that would have given her the intellectual bandwidth to question some of the advice that she's being, she would have been given. We have at the moment a committee, SAGE, a slightly curious name given some of um, what their um, recommendations have been. But SAGE has recommended things that are not not by any means wrong from the point of view of an epidemiologist from the point of view of a public health official they, they make perfect sense but perhaps what we need are ministers to slightly interrogate that advice and to question it and to challenge it and i think if you had a prime minister like margaret thatcher with that science background you would have seen far more skepticism skepticism in the real sense of the term um and i think we need we need skepticism um we're now six seven eight months into this situation and clearly what we were told we needed to do initially and what we now know are different things there's a learning process for everyone for public policymakers and for ministers and for everyone um i think margaret thatcher would have been a little bit more skeptical and, and quizzical about some of the advice she was given having having said that you know i i don't think anyone can blame yeah, for me, what we're seeing at the moment, the real significance of what we're seeing at the moment is the avoidance of a further national lockdown. I know that the tier one and the tier two and the tier three are very complicated. I know that parts of the country like Manchester have been under really quite 
stringent restrictive regulations for, for months. But surely the real significance of this is it's nothing like what we were experiencing back at Easter time. And that, that, is, that is what I think we need to avoid. And I think hats off to the government for trying to find a way to tackle the virus without resorting to that kind of lockdown. Uh, what about China and Huawei? What, what would have been Margaret Thatcher's reaction? I think the government's ended up in the right place, but I think it took a long time to get there. Um, if you remember Theresa May, for reasons that aren't clear to me, um, recommended that we could go ahead and partner with Huawei. Now, this isn't just, G5 isn't just any old technology. It's, it's not like allowing a company to come along and install new plumbing or, or new water pipes or new electricity generation. G5 is going to be so important to the way that our economies and our societies are arranged. The idea of allowing a company that is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party to have that kind of involvement in the day-to-day -day running of our country, it, it, it doesn't bear thinking about. But clearly there were some people at the very top of the British political making process who were willing to go along with this. And thank goodness the United States and this government eventually came to their senses and are under a lot of pressure from the Americans. But I think absolutely we, we made the right choice. We, we shouldn't persist with Huawei. It, it may seem like a quick route towards good G5 technology but I think it's a false economy. It's a little bit like the decisions that were made 20 or 30 years ago in Germany to import cheap gas from Russia. It looked like a smart move at the time. It doesn't look like a smart move on a cold January evening when you've got Putin making demands of you and knowing that he can flick the switch. You know, statecraft means you've got to be cunning and you've got to recognize that there are some geopolitical players that do not have our best interests at heart. And I think Margaret Thatcher would have always remembered that. And it's good to see that common sense has finally prevailed. Uh, we know that uh, Dominic Cummings is trying to do a vital revolution, but um, has anything visibly changed since Theresa May or David Cameron? What are the signs that there is an ongoing revolution in Westminster? There's been a lot of focus on it. Reform in Whitehall as being something driven by by Dom Cummings, and obviously there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I think I think Dom and the team in Number Ten now recognise some of the shortcomings of the system, but I think it would be unfair to ignore that actually there's a a, a longer rationale behind this. Cast your mind back to. Tony Blair winning a landslide majority in 1997, and then again, another landslide majority in 2001. If you spend time talking to some of the ex-Blairite ministers and civil servants, and I've, I've done this, I've spent six or eight months quietly talking to former Blair era ministers and civil servants. They will tell you how difficult it was to turn a parliamentary majority into an effective change of public policy. Now, Boris Johnson has got a bigger parliamentary majority, 80-seat majority. It's only right, I think, that we make some of these long overdue changes to the way that Whitehall is organised to make sure that we don't suffer the fate of the Blair government. The Blair government came in with these good intentions. Tony Blair would sit in a room with his civil servants. They would agree to change something. 
Six months later, he would ask what had happened, and to his incredible frustration, he would eventually realize that the levers weren't responding to his instructions. In fact, it was only three or four years after his landslide victory that he gave this famous speech where he complained about the forces of conservatism and he, he complained about the scars on his back and the difficulty he had in bringing about public administration change and reform. Now, we need to learn the lesson of Blair's failure. That's not to emulate Blair, but it's to learn the lesson of the failures of his government. Tony Blair eventually started to make some quite interesting reforms in the Whitehall system. He created a, a delivery unit in number 10. He started to be far more demanding of the civil service machine around him. But it was too little too late. Then of course, Gordon Brown gets in, followed by um, Theresa May and David Cameron, and the whole system of reform goes into reverse and the established civil servants um, basically revert to doing what they were doing before. So it's only right, I think, that this new government, and it is still a relatively new government, looks to make sure that when ministers want to change public policy, the civil service machinery around them responds. Um, if, if we don't do that, we're just going to see more and more popular disaffection with the political process. People are just going to think, do you know what, it doesn't matter who you vote for, nothing ever changes. And there are things that need to change in this country. No government in my lifetime has adequately tackled the problem of road congestion in Southeast England. None of them. No country, no, no government in my adult lifetime has adequately addressed the underperformance in schools of working class boys in many neighborhoods in the UK. These are long-term, really profound, difficult challenges. And it doesn't matter who you vote for in an election, we need a government that can tackle these problems. Why is it, for example, that you know, no government in 30 or 40 years has managed to build a new runway in the southeast of England. If we want to be a global open economy, for heaven's sake. Why isn't this happening? So there are, there are some deep-seated, profound public policy challenges that need to be addressed. And the machinery that we have in place at the moment is just not up to tackling them. This has to change. Mm -hmm. But do you think anything has already changed? Do you think there's evidence that uh, what the work that they're doing behind the scenes is effective. Yeah, clearly one of the problems of every every government since Tony Blair has suffered from what you would call a lack of strategic cohesion at the center. This means you've got you've got Downing Street which is a small office, you've got the cabinet office next to it, you've got the treasury next to that. It's all a bit disjointed. Already we start to see a bit of strategic coherence. You've got a, a team from Downing Street and the treasury working together. I think this is starting to create more strategic cohesion. We start to see the new civil service chief, Alex Chisholm, coming in and starting to really look at how we manage civil servants. There's no, there's no point in just blaming civil servants. Why don't civil servants in the UK have the skills that other civil servants around the world have in terms of project management, in terms of financial management? We're starting to see that reform within the civil service, if you like the civil service implementing some of these changes. And I, I, I think it's encouraging. I, I think if you get strategic cohesion and competence at the center, if you have higher caliber of project delivery amongst civil servants, um, you will start to see the effect of that. The key is to make sure that we start to see the effect of that 
Um, not necessarily before this Christmas, COVID has slightly overshadowed everything this year, but certainly before the next general election, people need to see that British public administration is actually a lot more competent than it, than it has been, because frankly, it's, it's not always been brilliant under governments of all three parties, has it? Mm -hmm. um, you talk about strategic cohesion be uh, between the Treasury and Number 10, uh, which we saw that happening when the, the former Chancellor was, uh, well, resigned. Uh, but there have been some rumours recently of a split between the Treasury and Number 10 uh, on the coronavirus measures, um, with Dominic, sorry, with uh, Rishi Sunak being more fiscal prudent and then Boris Johnson being the spender. Uh, do you think this is true? Do you think this is happening? Is there a rift between uh, Boris and Rishi Sunak on these measures? I mean, of course people are going to going to say that because you know one of the things the treasury does is count the beans count the money um mm -hmm. they have to raise the revenue through the bond auctions and and and, and all the rest of it through taxation um and you know of, of course the treasury is going to air its concerns but you know it was ever thus every single chancellor of the exchequer i was going to say since the second world war going going back even before the second world war has always been in favor of more sort of fiscal restraint. And, and you know, I don't think we should read too much into that. I, I actually think the significance of what's going on is, is not any division, it's the extent to which the Treasury has been so successful at meeting the demands placed on it by number 10. For example, whatever you think about Eat Out to Help Out, and I fully appreciate that not every free marketer thinks it's a good thing, I have my concerns about it, but it was an effective system. It was delivered very competently and very quickly at speed. Look at the furlough scheme. I know that there are some concerns about misuse and fraud and, 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 and the rest of it in, in terms of some of the other rescue packages, but the furlough scheme itself was delivered incredibly effectively, incredibly competently by the treasury team responding to what their masters in number 10 wanted. So I, I you know, Rarely over the past few years have I sounded pro pro government, but you know whatever else you think about the COVID response, they have been pretty effective at working together as two departments in in the centre of Whitehall. The Downing Street operation and the Treasury have delivered pretty effectively, and I think this is a consequence of this strategic cohesion that we're starting to see. Uh my last questions on the UK politics are on Labour, just one or two. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you think the Labour Party has already become a credible threat to the Tories. Uh, so if, because, you know, Paul suggests at the moment that Starmer has indeed restored his party's electability. What are your thoughts on this? Okay. Take a step back and look at this. The Tory party has been in office for a decade. Mm -hmm. The Tory party has presided over a 15% contraction in GDP over the past 12 months. The Tory party has presided over a huge level of, of public risk and, and concern over, over the coronavirus. And I looked at the latest polls and the latest polls show that the Tory party is ahead by three or four points against Labour. Labour under a new leader, a leader that was supposed to be charismatic and the answer to everything. If that is the best the Labour Party can do, and if 
this is the worst the Tory party can do in midterm. I think it's pretty ominous for Keir Starmer's Labour Party. And why, why is it that the Labour Party is doing so badly? I think that is the key question. And I think the key, the, the answer to that is because fundamentally Keir Starmer is trying to straddle the unstraddable. He, he is on the one hand trying to retain the support of a quarter of a million Twitter laborers, if you like, supporters of the Labour Party who frequent social media, who are incredibly woke, incredibly politically correct, um, and who share all the woke agenda that we, 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 we see promoted on social media. Mm -hmm. And against them are the other traditional Labour bloc, which Starmer needs if he's going to win actual seats in an actual general election outside of the, the, the Twitter mob. Blue-collar Labour in the constituencies is appalled by the values and the agenda of the woke Twitter mob. And so you know, Keir Starmer, when Black Lives Matter erupted and there was that appalling incident of a, 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 a man in America being killed by heavy-handed policing, Keir Starmer went down on his knee. I'm not quite sure why Keir Starmer going down on his knee in support of uh, a campaign against police brutality in the American Midwest is going to attract support from blue-collar traditional Labour voters who actually tend to be quite pro-policing in the UK. Um, you, 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 you've got this sort of perfect division that um, uh, now exists within the left in Britain between what, what the um, extreme leftists um, within the Labour Party want and what their supporters in the country want. And I'm not sure that Starmer is going to be able to bridge that gap. I, I, I think he's going to end up disappointing both. He's going to end up going down on his knee to try and appease the Black Lives Matter um, crowd. And at the same time, he's going to find he alienates himself from the, 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 the blue collar vote that he needs to actually win elections. So I, I think, you know, I think 2020 is as good as it gets for Keir Starmer. I don't think it's going to get better for him in 2021. Um, I think it's smart move, sorry to interrupt, that he hasn't talked about Brexit recently. You know, he, even when the government published the internal market bill, he just said, let's get Brexit done. When obviously he was the shadow Brexit secretary. So, yeah. I, I, I suspect that he wants the whole issue of Brexit to be abandoned and, and, and you know, the conversation to move on. Um, and I, I, I get why he would want that, because any hint that he was trying to overturn Brexit, and we all know what he really thinks. He, he's just the sort of person who's, who's appalled by Britain becoming an independent country. Um, any, any suggestion that we um, might actually fight the next general election about Brexit, I think, you know, I, I think the thought probably terrifies him. But we just reflect on the fact it's now nearly 40 years, I think I'm right in saying, since the Labour Party in this country won a general election with anyone other than Tony Blair as its leader. In New Zealand, we've recently seen Jacinda Ahern win a landslide. Now, someone in New Zealand was explaining that it's not the Labour Party in New Zealand that won, won this landslide, it's Jacinda that won this landslide. And I suspect actually the same is true in Britain. It wasn't the Labour Party that won those election victories in the late 90s and early noughties. It was Tony Blair. And you know, Keir Starmer ain't no Tony Blair.
Um, I wanted to move on to the US election now, uh, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, first of all, just a general question, what do you think will win the election? Goodness knows, I mean, I can't get a proper objective view as to what's happening in America because when I follow the people who are paid to report about what's happening in America, when I tune into the BBC or CNN, I only learn about the prejudices of the journalists who are talking. I never actually learn about what's happening in America. Even when I go on some of the um, opinion polling websites and, and Twitter feeds, and I, I look and I try and see, you know, is Biden ahead in Pennsylvania? Is he ahead in Florida? Is he ahead in Texas and all the rest of it? I, given what happened last time, I'm just not sure that those polls are telling a, an accurate picture of what's going on. So like many people, I'm actually going to stay up on the night of the election and I'm going to watch it and I'm going to watch it because I find American democracy absolutely riveting. Whatever you think, whether you, whether you love Donald Trump or whether you um, love Joe Biden, isn't it an extraordinary compliment to the American Republic that people from around the world should pay such close attention to what's going on? You know, America does all sorts of um, incredible things in terms of technology and its cultural achievements and its economic achievements. Um, I, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's democratic achievement um, is that, you know, it's become this extraordinary um, participative democracy where tens of millions of people around the world who aren't even American citizens like me watch with great interest to see what happens on the night. Um, I, I don't know who's going to win, but, um, you know, um, the American Constitution is, you know, the American Constitution has produced some colourful characters before. I don't think we should, you know, people sometimes over-dramatise the effect of what happens in terms of, um, you know, Anglo-American relations if we get this president or that president. You know, Britain and America are going to have to be allies in um, the world, um, irrespective of who is, who is in, in the White House. Uh, what are your thoughts on Joe Biden's policies or his uh, foreign policy? Could it be, uh, will there be more cozying up with China if he does become president? Why? What I'm, do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm reluctant to articulate my own view. I can only really reflect what other people, some people have said that actually Joe Biden would be very good news for the UK because if Joe Biden got in, he would re-engage America in forums like the Pacific Partnership and that, you know, that would be good for the UK. And I, I fully understand that. And I think that's a, a credible, sensible point of view. He would be much more pro-free trade, perhaps, than, 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 than Trump. Other people I know have actually taken the opposite point of view. They say, do you know what, you know, Donald Trump has actually been incredibly good for, for, for Anglo-American relations. He's unequivocally pro the United Kingdom. You, you know, you can't risk the chance of people like Nancy Pelosi um, being able to influence um, trade policy towards the UK. Do you know what? I, I suspect, irrespective of who is in the White House in six months' time, the United States is going to have to work closely with the UK. The UK is going to have to work closely with the United States. Why? There just aren't that many countries around the world that think like we do. Um, there are an enormous number of countries who are superficially liberal democracies, but there just aren't that many countries that have that fundamentally Anglo-American outlook on the world. And I, you know, I, I, I think that is far more significant than 
the difference between the two candidates for the presidency. Uh, could Joe Biden's victory help Starmer, you think? You know, there have been several reports comparing the two because uh, they try to present themselves as the moderate option. Um, could that help Starmer? It will excite various columnists. It will excite a number of people who, it will, it, it will excite a number of people who earn their living by writing newspaper columns. I, I think it'll be a very little significance to Starman's prospects at all. We know from what happened with Barack Obama that when Barack Obama came over to the UK and um, threatened that Britain, if we voted to leave the European Union, would be sent to the back of the queue, it, it had the precise opposite effect. So you know, what, what, is, what is Biden going to come and do to help Starmer in the UK? Imagine that he came over and said to people, you know, vote for Keir Starmer. I, I'm not sure that would necessarily have, have any effect. Perhaps what it might do is, is show the gap between what a successful centre-left leader could be, Biden, mm -hmm. and what we actually have in this country, which is Keir Starmer. The more that I think voters learn about Keir Starmer, I think the less impressed that they will be. That, that, that's all.